Thanks, Josh. Well, it's the second half of the quarterfinals of the 1986 Soccer World Cup. The score is nil all when Argentina's famous, infamous Diego Maradona finds himself alone in the penalty box with the English goalie. They both go for the ball, the goalie behind with his right hand and Maradona in front with his left. Maradona gets to the ball first and manages to use his left hand to smash it into the goal. Now, the whole idea of soccer, or football, by the way, is kind of a giveaway in the word itself, football. Unless you're the goalie, it's against the rules to use your hands. You're only meant to use your feet. Now, these were the days before technology. So despite protests from the English side, both the referee and linesman confirmed the goal. It was this goal that gave Argentina victory and allowed them to go on and win the World Cup against Germany. Maradona himself named this incident as, quote, the hand of God. The hand of God. He said afterwards that it happened a little with his head and a little with the hand of God. I'm not sure his head had anything to do with it, and neither did God. It was the hand of Diego Maradona, and definitely not God's hand that got the ball into the goal. Actually, we could say that it was the sinister hand of Maradona, since our word sinister comes from a Latin word meaning on the left side. Scoring the surprising goal with his left hand is one of the most infamous moments in soccer history. It wasn't until 19 years later, actually, that Maradona publicly confessed. He admitted to this. But then a few days later, he retracted that. <laughs> Today in Judges 3, we witness an infamous, infamous moment in Israel's history. When we see the hand of God at work. Although it looks very much like the hand of a guy named Ehud, God uses the sinister hand of Ehud to rescue his people. You see, a lot has changed since our previous judge. Last week might have felt to you like perhaps a stereotypical romance novel. There's the bad tyrant, right? Who rides into town and who will, whose name alone sends shivers down your spine. Double wickedness. Dun, dun, dun. And this evil king had a reign of terror until now the good music kicks in. The knight in shining armor shows up, Othniel, who defeats the wicked king. And he and his beautiful wife and all God's people lived happily ever after as the sun goes down. The end. If last week's passage felt something like a Disney cartoon, today's text seems more like a Star Wars film. The villain isn't a fearsome foe, but a fat, gullible Jabba the Hutt. And the hero isn't a brave knight, but a conniving assassin. This has got to be every little boy's favorite story in the Bible. It has everything, action, violence, toilet humor, it's all there. 
But beyond the satire and even grotesque bits, what I hope and what I pray we can see today is the hand of God, is, is God's hand in defeating his enemies and rescuing his people in unlooked for and even unexpected ways. That standing above this whole narrative, we get a glimpse of the hand of God who is mighty to save in salvation. So here's where we're headed. First, we'll look at a deserved judgment. Then, a dodgy deliverer, a doofus king, and a divine deliverance. A deserved judgment, a dodgy deliverer, a doofus king, and a divine deliverance. That's where we're headed as we look at this very ironic, satirical story in God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, show us. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen. So when we study this account in Judges, something to catch at the beginning of this story is that it's repeated two times. You can see it here. If you're looking just in the ver 12th verse, it says that Israel did what was evil in God's sight. In other words, the way they were living may have seemed right in their own eyes. But from God's point of view, it was wicked. That's why we're told two different times that they did what was evil in his sight. And when this occurred last time, God handed them over to an enemy. But something peculiar happens this time around. It says that the Lord strengthens the king of Moab against Israel. It's one thing to be handed over to an enemy. It's quite another to have God himself empowering the enemy to crush you and to do so for 18 years. Uh, the Moabites were Israel's next-door neighbor and distant relatives. They're from an incestuous relation between Lot and his two daughters. And as Israel, if you read some of the Old Testament, as they, they've had plenty of tiffs with these guys before, back in Numbers. Anyway, this king of Moab, what he does is he, he forms an alliance with two other nations, and together, we're told in verse 13, they take possession of the city of Palms. Do you hear that? They took control of the city. Now, you might be going, oh, he's kind of excited. The palm, what did he say? They took, they took the palm trees over? Wait, what? City of Palms? Huh? Uh, what? I don't get it. Okay. We have to pause for a second. Imagine how, imagine how an ancient Israelite would hear this. The city of Palms is Jericho. If we were to flip back just one book to Joshua, when Israel comes in across the Jordan, what's the first city they conquer? Where the walls came tumbling down. It was Jericho. That's how they're taking the promised land. Begins by defeating the city of Jericho. And now, right at the beginning of Judges, what's the first city to fall into enemy hands? Jericho. It's as though there's a reverse conquest going on. The Moabites are reversing the Israelite conquest. The, the Lord has put the control of this city 
into the hands of a tyrant. And to add insult to injury, now they've got to pay tribute to them. On a regular basis, they have to take their best crops, their best food, and hand it over to these guys, to the enemy. For 18 years. Look, before we begin feeling sorry for them, don't forget this was all God's doing. This is a punishment fit the crime. You reap what you sow. This is exactly what the Lord had warned them about. Remember back in Deuteronomy? This dilemma is a direct result of their disobedience. You know, we don't live in this context or under this covenant. But like Israel of old, our sin can lead to some painful consequences. You may have picked up a sinful habit recently. And perhaps you're starting to justify it by thinking, well, I guess God will have to forgive me again. Listen, God's grace covers a multitude of sins. But beware, he may decide to discipline you and it will not be pleasant. God cannot be mocked. It says in Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you are an unrepentant sin, my, my friend, listen. God is not going to be mocked by you. Israel was in a world of trouble, and, and my friend, you will find yourself in that place too. This is a just judgment. This judgment is deserved, but not all is lost. Next, we'll witness God's hand in deliverance. That is, by his hand, he will raise up a judge. However, it's not really the one you'd expect that we find this dodgy judge. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. I want to look carefully how this text describes this next judge. He is from the tribe of Benjamin, which if you remember back in chapter 1, they failed to drive out the Jebusites. So it's not, it's not the greatest clan. And this area of Jericho, its jurisdiction was given to Benjamin. So it makes sense that someone from this tribe would, would rise up to defend it. What doesn't make sense is the unlikely fellow that's chosen to do so. He's a left-hander. A left-hander. Now, now, what do I have against left-handers? Nothing. Two of my kids are left-handed. But the term Benjamin in Hebrew has two parts to it. Ben, son. So Ben means son. And Yamin, the right hand. And the way that Benjamin is put here, or Benjamin, it's like the author wants to draw attention to the ben, this Benjamite's identity. He's the son of the right-handers, yet he's left-handed or literally restricted as to his right hand. That could mean that he was crippled or disabled, we're not sure. In any case, Ehud, the son of the right-hander, who's actually a lefty, meaning lefty, not like he's politically left, like a lefty, is no doubt an unlikely 
hero. Verse 15 tells us that he was chosen to bring tribute to Eglon. They had to regularly bring, remember for 18 years, this, these grain offerings, these food. Bring tribute, that's a nice way of saying that Eglon is like the bully on the school playground. You know, you have to give your lunch money to him, otherwise he'll bash you, right? The same thing has happened on a national scale for thousands of years. The Israelites were under Moab's thumb, and so they had to pay up, or Eglon's thugs would make sure that you'd regret it. Now, we've got absolutely no idea why Ehud was chosen. But we do know what he's scheming, right? Just before he heads off in secret, he decides to make a weapon. Story's getting more and more interesting here. Notice here, verse 16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, so double-edged sword, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So he makes a straight two-edged sword that was only about 45 centimeters, the length of your elbow to your knuckles, give or take. Small enough to conceal, but sharp enough to kill. And he straps it to, notice, what does he strap it to? His right thigh, so no one would suspect it. Right? Because I'm right-handed, and if I was going to pull a sword, I'm gonna, it's, it's going to be a lot easier to pull it on my left thigh. So he's able to strap it to his right thigh. So most people would look not there, right? So Ehud, though, here's the, here's the deal. I want you to catch this. He's sneaky, he's duplicitous in not only his ways, but his words. Because when he approaches Eglon, he refers to his weapon as a thing. Uh, it's, the term he uses, debar, it's quite rubbery. Um, it could mean a word, a thing, matter. So when he says, I have a secret message or thing. You can see how he's playing on his words there. Very crafty. And Eglon takes the bait because he dismisses all his bodyguards out of the room and it's just the two of them. And Ehud says, I have, use the same word again, I have a message or a thing from God for you. All this, it's too much for Eglon to handle. So he stands up all right, what is it? I'm ready, give it to me, all right? Bang! <laughs> you see, this double-edged sword is just like Ehud's words, they're duplicitous. Again, he's a, he's a sneaky guy. He, after he kills Eglon, he sneaks out. He's not the type of guy you'd expect to be leading. Contrast him with Othniel. Very different. But I think that's the point. You see, as the nation of Israel degenerates, so do their leaders. All right, so, so far, we've looked at a deserved judgment, a dodgy deliverer, and now let's look at this doofus king. Because his description is less than nice. In verse 17, and he presented the tribute, there's that grain offering, to Eglon, king of Moab, now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> Why? You've got to laugh there. 
Well, why is his body weight even mentioned? I mean, Cushion Rishathayim, remember the villain last time? We don't know if he was fat or thin, but we know that this bloke is. So why? Why, why, is, why? why does the author even take the time to describe his body weight? Well, it depicts his greed and self-indulgence. It's an appetite fed by his exploitation of Israel, you see. And ironically, his name means calf. <laughs> and we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's keep reading because this is, there's a kind of a confusing bit in the story here in verse 18. Because, yeah, let me, let me look at verse 18. And, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols at Gilgal. Okay, what's, what's going on here? So Ehud hands over the tribute, and then he just seems like he walks away. Did you notice that? After all this buildup, this seems kind of anticlimactic. I mean, we we've kind of were there as the readers watching him fashion make this sword, right? Even use these tricky words. There's, and, there's, and notice too, when he when he comes in, there, there's no the text doesn't say that they didn't search him. There's no metal detectors going off. He's in the same room as the king, obviously, but he doesn't even try to take him down. Where's the action? Where's the deliverance? But then something happens to him when he gets to Gilgal. He chucks a Yui and he heads back. The other guys leave. He sends them home. Now, Gilgal is not far from Jericho, a- and we've already seen that it was an important religious place. But why did he turn around there? Perhaps he was provoked by the stone images, the idols that should have been destroyed. This is an important spot for Israel. And now it's been flipped. So maybe something in him, he gets provoked. We're not sure. What's surprising, though, is that when he goes back, Eglong doesn't seem startled at all. Like, oh, dude, what are you doing here? In fact, he seems to be eager to welcome Ehud back when he says quite mysteriously, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. Knowing that Ehud's just returned from Gilgal, he probably thinks, ah, He's learned something new while he's there. Perhaps the gods have have provided him with a juicy bit of information, a a direction that might bring me blessing and success. The king obviously feels safe and comfortable in the upper room of his palace, secure enough to invite this Israelite into his inner room, and then he dismisses his bodyguards. You see the point there? Not only is this man fat, but he's gullible, you see. And you don't, you don't just like dismiss all your body. God, silence, you know, everybody out. And now Ehud has him right where he wants him. Look at verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So after hearing this, Eglon stands up. You just picture this huge, obese man standing up, belly protruding out, fattened himself, as it were. He's the calf, remember? He's the calf who has fattened himself by exploiting Israel, God's people, for 18 years. And now this calf has fattened himself for the day of slaughter. He's a slow-moving target. God's the one who gave Israel into Eglon's hands for the last 18 years. 
And now he's going to give Eglon into Ehud's hand. Verse 21. This gets graphic. And Ehud reached with his left hand. It's almost like this just goes like a comic book here. You know those comic books when it goes bang, 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 like those quick captions, like boom, boom, and Batman's knocked out or whatever, right? It's, 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 just, it, it's rapid here. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. If this were made into a movie, it would definitely get an MA rating for gratuitous violence. <laughs> it's a pretty graphic description. Ehud, though, has single-handedly dethroned the Moabite king. And he makes sure to carefully close and lock the doors behind him on his way out before ducking outside into the night. Eglon's goons, though, are a bit late to the party, aren't they? So they miss Ehud leaving. And when they come along, they find the boss's doors locked. Verse 24, And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. The pong in the air makes them think that the doors are closed for a reason. I know you don't want me to talk about this because waiting for someone on the toilet is always a bit awkward, isn't it? His henchmen wait outside, wondering if their boss needs a bit more fiber in his diet. They're too embarrassed to go in, and as time drags on, it only gets more awkward. Eventually, some brave soul decides that this has gone on long enough, it's time to open the door, even if it's embarrassing, but to his shock, what does he find? Verse 25, And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. There's the king, lying dead on the floor, dead as a log. But the job's not fully done. Because what, what, is, what does Ehud do? I mean, sure, he's defeated the Moabite king, and they're leaderless now, so they're going to be a bit demoralized. But they're still powerful. So there's still work to be done. And that leads us to verse 26, a divine deliverance. A divine deliverance. Look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols. There, there's that same phrase again there. And escaped Sierra when he arrived. Notice what he does. He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel, so he's not just, he's not on the, he's, he's running, but he's not on the run. He's, he's rallying the troops. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, notice here, into your hand. Do you keep hearing this phrase? See, see this theme of hand there? Even if you drop down the very last verse of 30 here, so Moabite was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting, too, how the Moabites are described. It says that they are all strong, able-bodied men. Now, another way you could read that is that they are stout, meaning it could mean that they're 
strong. It could mean that, like their leader, they're a bunch of Jabba the Huts, <laughs> and they're all struck down. Whatever the point is, though, God is the one who delivers his people. God is the one. For 18 years, they suffered under the hands of Moab. This was all the work of the Lord, but now the Lord was giving their enemies into their hands, and he used the most unlikely of heroes to do it. You know, Ehud was not a strong military leader, working in the open like Othniel. Nevertheless, God used this shady, left-handed assassin to deliver his people. God's got a bit of a habit working in ways we don't expect, especially when it comes to delivering his people. If Ehud was the unlikely deliverer, how unlikely was it that God would take on human flesh, be born in a nothing backwater town called Bethlehem, live this earth, die on a cross. See, the Son of God became weak and veiled his glory under the robe of human flesh so that he might kill our greatest foe, death itself. Also, God doesn't generally choose impressive people. It's another lesson I think we can learn here. God often chooses ordinary people like you and like me. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, but not many of noble birth. See what encouragement that God uses ordinary folk, average folk like you, like me? I find that surprising. Not many of us were considered wise or noble. Some of us, perhaps, but most of us are just ordinary, ordinary people who've been called to take an extraordinary message. And God does this to show <clears throat> the magnificence of Christ. He uses surprisingly ordinary people who point to an extraordinary Savior. Paul goes on and he says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The mighty hand of God takes people, takes the underdog, the southpaw, the people that are you least expect, and uses them for his glory. Praise God. Praise God for that. And, and honestly, I think that I'm a, I'm a testimony to that my, my, in my own life. Um, I'm often amazed what the Lord has, what the Lord has done in, in my life and how he has used me. Uh, it's, it's, it's truly all glory to him. I, I should not <coughs> be following him. I should not have the wife that I do or the kids that I do or the opportunity to be your pastor. Um, and yet God chooses the things that are not. God chooses the lowly things of the world. So that's not me being, there's no false humility there too. That's just, that's just truth. And so thank God that we, we serve a, a mighty God. Let's pray. Lord, again, we <coughs> take this time to reflect and, and praise you, Lord, that as your word says, you humbled yourself, Lord Jesus, by 
becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, what seemed probably foolish in the world's eyes was your plan of of power and glory all, all along. We pray, Lord, that you'd grant faith to those listening now that are, are beginning to grasp what it means to follow a Savior who humbled himself, who took on flesh, who died on a cross and rose again. Lord, would you help them to see what it means to follow after Christ? For those of us, Lord, we thank you that you chose us, that we were not wise, we were not noble, yet for your own glory, and so that you can look great, you chose weak vessels like us. We pray that we would be faithful. Even this week, Lord, give us opportunities and give us boldness. Help us to look for ways that we can share the gospel with our neighbors, with people on Facebook, in all the spaces that we might be in, even in this lockdown, Lord. Would you use us for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing um, probably one of my favorite songs as of, as of recent. And you may not know this song, but it's a, it's a marvelous um, modern hymn, if you could call it that. And um, I'd really encourage you to just reflect upon the words and um, really excited to, to join together in this song. <laughs> 